0: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for joining us. Every day we see division in America, which only seems to grow more entrenched in this political and social climate. The wedges between Americans of different parties, of different races and gender, sexual orientations, ethnicities are as apparent now as they've been in modern history. One of the most powerful tools we have to change that is the way we teach our own children to treat and respect others. Most of us like to think we're raising kids with the values we hope will make the world a better place. But is that always really the case? My next guest has a new book that takes a very close look at how parents, in this case, white well-off parents, teach their children about race and racism. What she finds is fascinating and sometimes even shocking. Margaret Hagerman is author of White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. She is an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University, and she joins me now to talk about her work. Uh, Professor Hagerman, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Uh, You're in town uh, thanks to some local support as well. Talk Talk about what you're doing here in Detroit.
1: Yeah, so the Merrill Palmer Skillman Institute for Child and Family Development uh, here at Wayne State invited me to give a talk um, up here in Detroit. So I am here and mm-hmm. you know I'm able to come and, t- and chat with you today too.
0: Yeah, uh, and this is a really interesting city, I think, to try to come and have this conversation uh, given uh, not only our history and the history of race and racial division here, But given the current conversations that we're having about the way our city and region are changing and the role that race plays in that. But uh, let's start with uh, how you came to the idea to, to write this book and how you went about researching it.
1: Sure. So this work emerged um, after I did a lot of reading in the field of sociology on the topic of what we call racial socialization. And this research largely focuses on how parents raising black children in America prepare their kids for potential violence, racism, discrimination, and so forth. Um, And so as I was reading that really important work, I started thinking about sort of what's going on in white families. How are white parents potentially teaching their children Um, to be racist or or to embrace sort of these ideas of racism or maybe, you know, to challenge racism. And so um, because of that interest, I decided to move to a – it's actually a Midwestern metropolitan area – And I spent three months just sort of getting a lay of the land. And then I was able to, for the next two years, um, follow and and study 30 families that were raising middle school age children who were white and also affluent.
0: Yeah. Uh, And so what did you find when you spoke with these families about how they teach concepts of race and racism with their kids?
1: Yeah, so I had a, there were a lot of interesting findings that emerged from this study. I think one of the uh, most important findings is that these children had very different ideas about racism, privilege, and equality, and so forth. Um, I kind of thought that maybe they would have a lot more in common with one another since they were, you know, living in the same place and had a lot of similar um, experiences. But actually, um, as a result of some of the choices their parents were making, I found that they had different ideas, mm-hmm. um, and these ideas did not always necessarily correspond with their parents' thought. Um, And there are actually moments when kids would be challenging their parents on something, whether it be, you know, oh, mom, you said something racist, Um, or maybe even, you know, the other way around where the parents are sort of calling out their child for saying something that they thought was problematic. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, What are the bigger social implications of what you saw in this Midwestern town?
1: Yeah, so often I think that, you know, especially after racist hate crimes, there's a lot of um, discussion in the media about how, white parents need to talk to their kids about racism. Mm-hmm. And while I think that's really important, I think what my research shows is that the, the choices that parents are making about things like where to live and where to send their kids to school and the extracurricular activities to embrace, the friendships to encourage or even discourage, I think that those choices have a lot of um, influence on how kids think about race. And so I don't think it's enough for white parents just to talk to their children about race. I think that this this whole um, concept of, of white racial socialization is much deeper, and and I think that it has implications for things like, you know, residential segregation and school segregation and the ways that white parents, especially when they have a lot of resources, set up their their children's lives.
0: Yeah, um, that, inter- that that's a really interesting observation. This idea that what we say to our kids is sometimes quite disparate from the messages we send with our own choices and behavior uh, to our kids and that it's the latter that might have a stronger influence.
1: Absolutely, it's the sort of the actions speak louder than words uh, kind of mantra.
0: And and uh, in this town uh, talk about the 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 sort of range of of Attitudes and reactions that you you picked up from uh, these children, as you say, they are uh, at least demographically somewhat homogenous. They are white. They are uh, fairly well off. They live in the same community, but their their views and their approach to this was was really different. Uh, talk about what some of those differences were.
1: Yeah. So some of the children, and particularly kids that were living very sort of racially sequestered lives, is how I re- refer to it, but very white, you know, lives. Um, they told me things like racism doesn't matter anymore, Um, we don't have racial inequality in America, Um, that, you know, just have to work hard. And if everyone works hard, then, you know, what's the problem? Um, And that was quite different from some of the other children who told me, you know, in very concrete terms about the racial wealth gap and about residential segregation and about things that they had noticed at their own school and in their own neighborhoods with respect to how authority figures interacted with their black friends or their black peers and then themselves or or other white peers. Um, And so, you know, those kids had a lot more to say about racism. And I think it had a lot to do with, the social context that they were living in, which was different from the previous yeah. group.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I also wonder uh, how much awareness these children had of their privilege, right? And it's one of the things that I think a lot of parents uh, struggle with, and that's parents uh, of, of all ethnicities. Uh, you know, uh, if you make a certain salary or, or have access to certain things, uh, you you think sometimes about, well, how aware are my kids that their existence is really different than uh, other people's? W- w- was that something that you picked up on?
1: Well, I did talk to the kids explicitly about this. And again, there was a range. Um, it was interesting, I thought, in particular, to talk to kids that went to private school. Um, and actually, some of those kids told me that um they thought that they were smarter than their public school peers that they were more likely to become a leader um in the future that they were entitled to things because mm-hmm. they you know they perceived as a result of their their schooling environment and and the way that even their parents talked about that choice that they were you know they were more successful and they were smarter um so i thought that was one way that that, that privilege was not really being recognized mm-hmm. um necessarily but the, you know, and then again, there were other children who could talk in very clear terms, not only about economic privilege, but also about racial privilege and about the awareness that they are treated differently because of their race. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a range. Yeah,
0: uh, the 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 gap between uh, race and and economics on this issue, I think. Is is really key, and, and it's it's one of the places that I think when we are trying to talk about privilege and race, or privilege and 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 wealth, that we get tripped up a, a little in America that that we that we can't sort of discern the difference. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what you observed uh, in in that realm uh, in this in this research.
1: Right. That's a really great question. And it's certainly one that social scientists and sociologists um, specifically really try to explore. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's important in my research is to look at the ways in which race and class privilege are working together and they're entwined with one another. And it's actually very difficult to separate them out in some ways. Um, Although that being said, um, certainly in this community, there were affluent black people, Mm -hmm. um, but their experiences were different than those of the affluent white people. Um, And in talking with some families in the community, you know, it's interesting. All the white people were like, oh, this is a great place to live. This is, you know, amazing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the black families that I spoke to, you know, so not as part of the research, but just being in this community, um, you know, living there told me, you know, there's a lot of problems here. Like, look at the data, look at the criminal justice system, you know, look at what's happening. So there was a real sort of, um, you know, d- distance, I think, between the ways that people were, were making sense of their same community. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's about, that's about race. That's not just about class.
0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Margaret Hagerman. She is author of White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. She's an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University. We are talking about race and class and the way they interact to define privilege and the way that uh, the things that we do with our kids uh, teach them about. Privilege and race and racism. Uh, I, I want to talk a little about my my own kids here for a second, um, and something uh, that, that that's come up a couple times with them. Uh, my kids are of course African Americans. Uh, they are they are teenagers and becoming young adults, uh, and they're very aware of this concept of white privilege. They're very aware of the idea of the, the phrase that they use all the time, rich white kids, right? The rich white kids do this, rich white kids do that. Uh, and I find myself uh, reacting to that in a couple of ways. Uh, one is that I, I, I want them to be aware of the society they live in and the the dynamics that will affect their lives and their friends' lives. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I want to be really careful uh, not to have them make snap judgments about people based on their skin color, based on their economic class, their status. Uh, uh, and I find myself pushing back sometimes and saying, well, hold on a second, yeah, okay, that's those are rich white kids. but." How do we know that they are just like all the other kids who fit that demographic uh, uh, description? And I think that's something that black parents uh, struggle with a lot. Uh, just as white parents, I think, uh, want to uh, be sure that their, their, their kids aren't racist and, and saying racist things. There, there, there is this, this uh, more complicated side of that for, for black parents. Uh, I want my kids to know what race and racism are. But I want to hold them back from from that instant kind of judgment.
1: Right. Yeah, that's that's a really um, yeah, that's really powerful. And I, I think that this is yet another reason why it's so important for us as a country, as a city, you know, wherever we live to really pay attention to segregation. And I think that it's, you know, it's so much easier to care about somebody who is in a different social position than you if you have meaningful relationships that are equal status and that, you know, can build trust and can build even love. I mean, maybe sounds cheesy, but I really believe that, you know, and that, if we can find ways to care about one another, um, you know, I, I don't think that's the only solution. Certainly, we have structural dynamics at play that we have to deal with at a level of policy and and so forth. But um, yeah, I think that the more that kids can interact with one another across racial lines and in ways again that are equal status, um, I think that that could potentially lead us all, you know, in in a better direction. Yeah,
0: you know, uh, it also occurs to me that that. Uh, it's far more common the experience that my kids are having uh, growing up in, in an integrated environment where they know African-American kids, of course, but they also come into contact in school and other places with, with, with uh, white kids. And, and, and In some cases, uh, white kids have uh, a lot more privilege than they have. Uh, white kids don't as frequently, I think, get that Opportunity because of things like segregation and and the choices we make about about where we live,
1: right? And and specifically the choices that white people make about where to live. That's right. Um, you know, and, and and the importance of of you know I talk in my book about the power of white kids, and part of the power that white kids have is not only you know power in the future, but power right now, in that they you know oftentimes parents are making decisions with those white kids in mind that reinforce these patterns of segregation.
0: Yeah. Uh, I also want to talk about the the research you did here. You you spent two years uh, in this in this town, and uh, it sounds from from your description of it in the book that essentially you became a part of this community. I think that's a that's a really interesting approach, uh, and it's one that we are seeing in, w- with some other researchers, uh, Matthew Desmond. Uh, comes to mind. We've spent a lot of time on this show talking about his work and talking to him about his work. Uh, But talk about that sort of immersive style of of research and how it leads you to not just deeper understanding, but maybe uh, different kinds of conclusions about your subjects and about uh, their lives.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things we know about survey research with white people, and particularly the study of white racial attitudes, is that often whites are not honest mm-hmm. in, on these surveys. Mm-hmm. In fact, some scholars find they just don't even answer the questions about race. They leave them blank, or they say, I don't know. Um, and so instead of survey a survey design, I instead used an ethnography, which is this immersive approach that you're referencing that, that Matthew Desmond has used and other scholars as well. Um, there's not very many ethnographies of privileged communities. A Mm -hmm. lot of times, um, you know, the work focuses on folks who are marginalized. Um, And so my project is slightly different in that I sort of immerse myself in this community of privilege. Um, And I use my own privilege. I'm I'm a white woman and I use that in a way to, you know, have conversations. And I mean, many of the participants told me that they never would even talk about this stuff if I wasn't also a white person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I also I talk in my methods section of my book about, you know, just I walked into country clubs and private pools and, you know, birthday parties, all these spaces. And nobody
0: called the cops. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Nobody
1: cared. Oh, there's a white lady. You know, so um, I, I tried to use that in a way that was, you know, could 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 help me understand how these people how these people were making sense of their world. And I think it's important to understand sort of where they're coming from so that we can sort of understand the reproduction of, of racial inequality in a, in a new
0: way. Yeah, uh, that really relies though on your gaining incredible trust uh, f- from from the subjects, which I, I know doesn't instantly materialize, uh, that, that materializes over time. But I also wonder whether uh, their reaction to the work that it produced Uh, How did that make them feel? Uh, Did you run into anyone who felt as though you used your access in a way to gain information that they were not necessarily thrilled to to see in print? Did they feel – did anyone feel betrayed by what you did?
1: Well, so far, the responses that I've received are that they think it's an accurate reflection Mm -hmm. of what was going on. Now, this was um, I conducted this work a few years ago. So I do wonder if, you know, maybe there's a little distance between that moment in their lives raising kids. Um, and I try to be careful in the book. And as I talk about it, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, insult these families or 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 sort of challenge even their parenting. I think they're trying to navigate structural inequality at the individual level, which is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a critical race analysis of what goes on in white families is important. And I think that, you know, the families in this study were willing to have that mirror sort of held up, which I you know I really commend them for that, and I'm very grateful. Um, but yes. So the, the main response so far has been, yeah, you know, there's some parts that were a little rough, but, <laughs> but I think you captured it. And that's for me as a social scientist, what's most important that I accurately, you know, was able to sort of, um, describe what was happening. Yeah.
0: Well, and in a way that, that, um, uh, I guess that, that suggests, uh, hope maybe, uh, the, the idea that, uh, they didn't, react negatively, but that they also, I think uh, I, I think what I hear you saying is th- that they sort of acknowledge some of the 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 difficulties that you point out in saying one thing and maybe having a life that reflects something different, uh, th- that uh, understanding that uh, these are some of the things that create the gaps that they might see in the way that their kids deal with it
1: absolutely. And I mean, I call it a conundrum of privilege, and mm-hmm. I think that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think, You know, when you have these abstract values of equal opportunity and fairness, um, but then you're faced with making choices about how to use your resources with respect to, you know, giving your own kid advantages. You know, there's it's a conundrum. Um,
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, this is a moment when we're talking a lot about uh, about privilege in in our society and uh, how it plays out in different ways. You're focused on race here. Uh but gender and issues of sexism are are sort of front and center right now in Washington um, uh, with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. I wonder uh, how you might compare those conversations to the conversation you're trying to lead in this in this book?
1: Well, from my understanding, I think that, the prep school environment that's being discussed a lot in Washington right now and, and the culture of um, sexual violence and so forth that I think is pervasive. You know, um, research shows that it's pervasive across different class groups. Sure. Um, but I do think that, that certainly the, the families in my study are not that level of affluence. They're more like upper middle class. Um, so some of them send their kids to private school, but it's not these elite prep schools in Washington, D.C. area. Mm-hmm. You know, Um but I did see this sort of sense of entitlement emerging. And it's something that, um, you know, many of my colleagues, Jessica Calarco, is a great example. She has a book um, about negotiating opportunity. And and I do think that there are ways that young people are learning to be entitled and to feel entitled. And I think that that relates to race in and, and my work and class. and But it also relates to gender. Um And, you know, certainly my book doesn't interrogate gender very closely, but I certainly did see this sort of emerging sense of entitlement in many of these children. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, this belief that they're going to be leaders and that they're entitled to that, that those jobs are for them and that, you know, they shouldn't be for anybody else. And that gets into, you know, conversations that relate to affirmative action and some other topics as well. Sure. Um, so I, so that's really, I think, the extent to which I can speak to this A really important question that you're asking. Um, I, do, I do think there are connections. Yeah.
0: Okay, Margaret Hagerman, author of White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America, assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University. Thanks very much for joining us here on Thank Detroit you. Today. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. The program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan, And our associate producer is Gus Navarro. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. Tomorrow on the program, we will talk with Secretary of State Democratic candidate Jocelyn Benson, and Mitch Album will join us to talk about his new book. This is 101.9 WDET, Detroit's public radio station and community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.